Paul says, verse 19, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. And then he says in conclusion, brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. The emphasis on holy. Make note of that, very important. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And Father, help us now as we open the word of God. We, as always, just humbly acknowledge that our natural mind cannot comprehend the things that are spiritual. And Lord, our hearts often are cluttered. And so we pray that you'd make our hearts good, fertile soil that the seed of your word can be deposited down into it and take root and blossom and flourish and bring spiritual fruit through this time that we spend studying your word together. As always, prepare us, give us an ear to hear what your spirit would say to this part of your church through this particular section of your word this morning. And as always, may your Holy Spirit be our teacher. Speak to us, Lord. You know what we're asking and we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, where indeed does the life and the power and the energy of a healthy church really stem from? I think if you look at the modern church today, you probably can see a lot of different things that would give you maybe some different ideas. And I guess the question has to be, does that life and power and energy of a healthy church perhaps come from very talented people with charismatic and highly energized personalities? Some people would conclude that. I think sometimes people conclude that maybe that's generated by having exciting presentations at the meetings when the church gets together and that that's critical and important, becomes more somewhat almost it seems about entertaining people rather than trying to edify people spiritually and invest in their lives in an eternal way. Or is it innovative programs where you make sure you have something that fits and fills every single possible person's unique needs and particular things that would appeal to them or is it being uh, energized by just being very well organized and making sure you're well financed with investors that you've sought out that are really behind the work and doing what you can to have cutting edge methods well Jesus said this very simply in John chapter 6 verse 63 Jesus said it is the spirit who gives life the flesh profits nothing So Jesus' evaluation of the spiritual life, the Christian life, imagine that, said that the spiritual life is inspired by the Spirit, by the Spirit of God. That's a novel idea, isn't it? That it actually is the Spirit that empowers, that enables, that gives life and energizes the spiritual life of the church. And that human effort and activity and ideas, though God can use those things, they cannot produce ultimately what God intends and what Jesus intends for the life of his church. The Christian life is a spiritual life. It's a supernatural life. That's what Jesus meant when he said it is the Spirit 
who gives life. In fact, the very last thing that Jesus, in essence, said after he rose from the dead and before he ascended back into heaven from whence he came after his earthly ministry was that believers, you and I, Christians, those in that day of the early church, that they should wait for this promise of the Father. And then Jesus went on to describe it, saying this, Acts 1, he said, which you've heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now, and you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and then you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You know, the early church, when you study the book of Acts and even church history, the early church, by all means, let's be very honest, was not perfect. I think some people have a super spiritual idea of the early church. And I hear people say, why can't we be like the early church? Well, listen, by Acts chapter 5, People were being struck dead because of hypocrisy and problems in the early church. So the early church didn't have its problems. It was no perfect church by any means. But one thing we must be honest about is the early church was clearly empowered by the operation of the Spirit of God. That the Spirit of God was powerfully and clearly and distinctly moving and ministering and directing what was happening. In fact, A.W. Tozer, many of you know him, a great saint of old, said this, I quote, Tozer said, If the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would know the difference. He said, if the Holy Spirit had withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop and everybody would know the difference. Well, that's a sad indictment. Uh, that honestly is pretty searching. How open are we as Christians and as a church, how open are we to the operation and the ministry of the Spirit? How dependent, how reliant are we as individual Christians and in this particular local assembly, how dependent and reliant are we upon the Spirit's work among us as Christians and as a church I, I pray for myself and for all of us that we never become a movement that is just all about morality. Certainly we should be moral people, godly, righteous people, but that we would not be a movement just about morality, but a gathering that is marked by spirituality. And I think there's a difference. I think this is what mattered to Jesus. Why in John 4, Jesus said, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. That is, yes, within the boundaries of accurate theological, spiritual understanding from the word of God, yes, that's important to worship in truth, but by the same token, never failing to realize that we worship in the dimension, in the realm of the spirit, because God is spirit. And in order to truly have worship and experience with God, we must be open to the realm, the dimension, the dynamic of the Spirit of God, who is a part of God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The church life is intended to be spiritual, a spiritual institution, a community of believers where the Spirit of God is at work among us. And I think, quite honestly, that is why as we come to this last section of verses now in 1 Thessalonians, 
we get some warning and counsel here, kind of, again, more practical, little instructions, statements that are being made, little pithy kind of exhortations. But I think this section here is dealing with how we relate and respond to the operation of the Spirit of God among the church and almost warning us to be careful not to ignore or set aside or resist the Spirit in His ministry among us. Notice again, verse 19, we can see that's where we're going. He says there, another exhortation in this section, verse 19, Paul goes on to say, do not quench the Spirit. Do not quench the Spirit. He gives a warning that each believer and the church collectively there in Thessalonica not make the dangerous mistake which we all can be guilty of or restricting or suppressing the spirit of God of perhaps doing things whereby we start to cut off the life and the operation of the spirit among us as a church Paul warns against this notice the the spirit here is pictured in his ministry and operation as the activity of of fire that's the actual language he uses there when he talks about quenching it's talking about not putting out a fire and again some of your translations may even render this i believe do not put out the spirit's fire john the baptist spoke of being baptized with the holy spirit and fire and one of the and there's multiple ones one of the emblematic pictures of the holy spirit in the bible is representing the spirit in the form of a fire so he says here do not quench the spirit again the idea is don't put out the fire of the spirit the, the language that's used there in the greek refers to extinguishing or smothering the flames of a burning fire to try and put it out so the idea here is the bible saying that we need to be careful that we don't restrict the Spirit of God, that we don't stifle the Spirit's fire among us, that we don't suppress the fire of the Holy Spirit who is seeking to keep a burning fervency among the people of God and among the church by the Spirit's fire in our midst. Apparently, it's a fitting illustration of what we can do spiritually, that we can become guilty of quenching the spirit and how can we do that how let me just generically state it in this way two very simple ways we can quench the spirit first of all when the holy spirit is telling you or i to stop doing something that's wrong and we don't listen so when the holy spirit identifies something he puts his finger on something in your life as an individual christian or he puts his finger on something among the church collectively that we're doing or and he says look this is wrong and he, and he speaks to us, the conviction of the Spirit. Look, this is wrong. The Spirit of truth reveals this is, I, this is not pleasing to God. I want you to stop this. It's wrong. And when we ignore that, we're quenching the Spirit. Now, on the other side of that, in the same way, generically, another way we quench the Spirit is when the Holy Spirit tells us to step out and do what is right. And we resist that voice. And we ignore that or we don't listen. And the Holy Spirit is saying, hey, I want you to go help this person. Or I want you to go over there and you need to talk to this person about that. Or the Holy Spirit says, I want you to take this step or do something in obedience. And we refrain from doing that. We're quenching the Spirit because he's trying to lead us to do something sometimes that is right or righteous or pleasing to God. Maybe it's saying sorry or just talking to somebody about the Lord or, or whatever it may be some step of obedience and we for whatever reason don't listen that's quenching the spirit 
So not only doing what's wrong, but also failing to do what's right. Let me illustrate this for you. One way we can simply quench the spirit is by dishonoring the instructions given in Scripture that God offers to us. For example, look back up into verse 14. We just looked at this last time. He said, we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. So how can we quench the spirit? Well, when we don't warn someone who is unruly, we're quenching the spirit. When we don't comfort the faint-hearted, we're quenching the spirit. When we are not upholding the weak as we should, we're quenching the spirit. When we're not being patient with those who are unruly and faint-hearted and weak, we're quenching the spirit. Verse 15, if we render evil for evil, instead of refraining from doing that, we're quenching the spirit. Verse 16, he says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing and everything give thanks. When we stop being joyful and celebrating the Lord, when we cease from praying as we ought to, we're quenching the spirit. When we have a heart of ingratitude rather than gratitude, we're quenching. You see what I'm saying? So we can quench the spirit by simply just ignoring what the spirit of God wrote to us to tell us to do in our lives. To disregard any of those things is one way of quenching the Spirit. The Bible says that the fruit of the Spirit is love. And whenever we cut off the love of God from our hearts personally or God's love begins to be cut off and smothered in a fellowship, that is a way of, in a sense, quenching the Spirit. And the Bible warns us against this. You know, sometimes the Spirit of God is quenched as well due to maybe a lack of scriptural understanding or maybe... From bad experiences a Christian or maybe a collective group of believers has had or things they've observed and as a result people become fearful rather than having faith and they're therefore intimidated to be open to the spirit. And maybe a bad experience they had in a prior church or something they saw or experienced. And all of a sudden, there's this attitude where the Spirit of God starts to be stifled and starts to be somewhat suppressed because the, the gifts of the Spirit and the ministry and operation of the Spirit, well, well we, we have to be careful. I mean, the validity of that, we start letting something like that operate among us, that same weird thing that happened over there that I experienced before. And all of a sudden, fear begins to grip the heart and there becomes this uneasiness that things might get odd or they could get weird and people start to suppress and quench the Spirit. A church can start to quench the spirit. A Christian can just shut off and lock the door altogether and in a sense restrict any opportunity to experience any activity or ministry of this thing called the spirit because, hey, I saw that once before and it was really weird, man. People got really bizarre and, and sadly, let me just say this, sadly that diminishes, please hear me, the spiritual fire that is necessary for the fervency of the church. That diminishes and robs the spiritual fire that is critical for you and I to stay on fire spiritually. So we want to be careful of this. Let me say this this morning. Please hear me in this. The Holy Spirit is not going to act weird or odd any more than God the Father or God the Son acts weird or odd. 
Isn't it interesting how people get all like kind of uneasy in regards to being open to the spirit of God's work among his people? But people aren't like, man, let's not be open to Jesus. He might get weird. God the Father, let's not be too open to him. He might do something weird in our midst. Well, listen, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are one. The Holy Spirit's not going to do anything more weird than Jesus is going to do something weird. If we're not afraid and intimidated of being open to Jesus, why are we afraid of the Holy Spirit? The problem is, again, it's unfortunately just because, let's be very candid, the Holy Spirit, does he not? He gets blamed for a lot of things that go on sometimes in spiritual realms. And the Holy Spirit gets misrepresented for a lot of things that happen in circles of churches and religious communities. Remember how the Spirit is portrayed in the Bible at Jesus' baptism? He's portrayed as what? A dove. What does a dove represent? Tranquility, beauty, something wonderful. The Holy Spirit's not represented as a duck. You know? But there's a lot of quacks, is there not? In the name of the Holy... And, and that's what people think. People think that the Bible, the Holy Spirit is like a duck. Really, people do quacky things when they're open to the Spirit or the baptism of the Spirit happens or you have a believer's meeting and we're going we're gonna to wait on the Lord and see what happens and oh no, here they go. They dim the lights. They're worshiping. There's something, something quacky is going to happen here. And, and this is a rather unfortunate thing. I think it's something unfortunate that happens as the result of a reaction of things that have taken place. Take notice as well. Look at the text. Please don't miss this. Verse 19. He says, Do not quench, I have it underlined, the Spirit. Do not quench the Spirit. The Spirit. Referring to what? The Holy Spirit. Here's why I say that. Unfortunately, this verse, obviously, maybe you've seen it, is used wrongly at times as ammunition or argument when people do want to justify or have the freedom to behave how they want to behave or to act in a certain way or to excuse their behavior in certain ways spiritually and maybe you try in love to ask someone not to do something or not to behave in a certain way maybe in a meeting and, and where, where's the instant ammunition? Hey man, don't quench the Holy Spirit. Your leadership's quenching the Holy Spirit. Don't quench the Holy Spirit. Uh, look, let me say this. There is a spirit that is to be quenched. It's called the human spirit. The Bible says, do not quench the spirit, the Holy Spirit. We don't quench the spirit, but there is at times an occasion when it is right to stifle the human spirit or let me go further, maybe even an unclean or evil spirit. Do you remember an evil spirit followed Paul the Apostle around in his ministry saying these men are servants of the Most High God? That's spiritually accurate. And she was following Paul all around. These men are servants of the Most High God. Servant. And Paul, it says, got annoyed. Is that possible in the Holy Spirit to get annoyed? Paul got annoyed and he rebuked this unclean spirit. Why? Because he didn't need the devil's advertising. He wanted God's spirit to do God's work. So there is a time, I thoroughly believe, where a spirit that is not of the Holy Spirit, the human spirit and evil spirit, should be quenched because if that's left unaddressed and permitted to continue in its antics, that can in and of itself quench the genuine work and operation of the Holy Spirit by causing distraction among God's people. 
And I remember when we were pastoring in Pennsylvania, I mean, we had this occasion happen all the time. We had the scarf waver one time who came in and, you know, had a, this like big, long red scarf. And of course, you know, they never stand in the back against the back wall to want to do their thing. They prominently place themselves right in the spot where when worship starts, you know, they, you know, and doing the whole scarf thing and doing, you know, maneuvers or whatever. And hey, wonderful. But why don't you just do that at home seven days a week and the one hour you're with a bunch of other people who want to worship Jesus and focus on God, you refrain from doing that because everybody else in here is not waving a scarf. So when you do that, technically what you're doing is you're just, everybody's looking at you and trying to, I can't see the words on the projector because your scarf's going. <laughs> and now they're all distra- Again, you try and, sp- hey, don't quench the spirit. Well, I don't know. Does the Holy Spirit want to distract people from God? Does he want to do things that cause people to be interrupted from worshiping God? Sadly, let's be honest, because of a lot of unfortunate and odd things that happen at times under the false advertisement of the Spirit, too often Christians overreact and they fly way to the other extreme because of one bad experience or some unfortunate things. And the tragedy is we can then quench the genuine moving and operation of the Spirit, which is legitimate and which at times is needful for God's people. It's helpful for God's people. It's a part of God's will. As a believer in a church, we need to be open to the work of the Spirit and yet just balance that simultaneously with the Word of God and what we know of the Scriptures. Again, so important. Don't let one unfortunate experience make you fly to an extreme and a reaction and shut down the genuine, beautiful, harmonious, tranquil, beautiful, wonderful ministry of God's Spirit, which is legitimate to keep the fire and fervency among God's people, to minister in a given hour the power of God among the people of God. Perhaps that's why the next thing he then goes on to say, verse 20, is to say, do not despise prophecies. Again, an instruction and warning not to view or treat prophecies as worthless or to quickly dismiss them of no value, or worse, maybe even kind of like look down on prophecy altogether, again, as if somehow that's something we don't need and and, and is almost a bigger problem than it is of help or benefit. Prophecies, the term used there, refer to brief messages or statements. They're not teachings. Uh, the gift of teaching is one spiritual gift. They're not prepared, lengthy, you know, more extended uh, messages from God. They're brief statements or messages whereby people speak forth what God wants declared in a given hour, in a particular situation, times when God speaks a message to humanity through the words of a man. It's almost as if, again, it's almost as if God uses a human being like his temporary phone. This phone is a device to be able to communicate through. The device isn't doing the communicating. There's someone communicating through this device so someone else can clearly hear what's being said from another location that's not present with you. In a sense, that's what happens in essence with prophecy. God chooses to use a human being, a man, a woman, a a young boy, a young girl, and he puts a timely word upon their heart by his spirit. He gives them something that he wants them to share. It's divinely inspired speech where God's spirit guides the words and gives the actual words and statements that he once said. David said this in 2 Samuel 23 verse 2. He said, the spirit of the Lord spoke by me. 
and his word was on my tongue. Again, prophecy is one of the spiritual gifts we have given to us in the Bible that God operates among his church at times as the spirit wills and as he determines using whom he sees fit in the given hour. And the spirit, again, may give a word to someone, a you know, man, a woman, not gender specific, that he wants to share something with a person or with a group by putting a strong impression the way it happens many a times upon their heart or upon their mind that he wants them to share something. And that in that instant or in that moment, again, Prophecy is not limited to being predictive. A lot of times we hear prophecy, we think that means foretelling what's going to happen. That's one element of prophecy because God's an eternal God. So God dwells outside the time continuum. So God already knows what's going to happen three days from now, three months from now, three weeks from now. So certainly when God gives a word, he can speak predictive because he already encompasses all of time and eternity. But prophecy is not limited to just being predictive. In fact, I think more often than not, prophecy, because God works in the present given hour as a personal God, prophecy usually is simply God just giving a timely word in season. God just ministering something that is something that needs to be said, that people need to hear so that they can know, wow, God just spoke to me. I know that was God. I know that God, because that's exactly what I needed to hear at this hour as that person said, and, hey, I just want to share it. God put something on my heart. I think he wants me to tell you this. Or the Lord gave me this scripture. He wants me to share it with you. The New Testament, 1 Corinthians 14.3, even gives a definition of what spirit-led prophecy looks like. 1 Corinthians 14.3 says, He who prophesies speaks edification, exhortation, and comfort to all men. So there we see the Bible says, balancing prophecy, there are three intended things God does with prophecy. Prophecy, when it's spirit-led from the New Testament perspective, the Bible says we'll do one of three things. It will edify, it will exhort, or it will comfort. So in other words, prophecy is either going to build up people spiritually to help them in their relationship with God. It's not going to tear them down. It's not going to be condemning. It's not something to freak people out. God gave me a word that you're going to Florida. Oh, I saw a plane crashing. Well, I don't feel very built up right now. I feel very unedified. So I don't know if I'm going to receive that that's a word from the Lord. You know, maybe you just watch the TV show and that, you know, it builds up. It strengthens people spiritually. He says as well, prophecy serves to exhort, exhortation. That's to stir up people to action, to stir up people to obedience. God gives a prophetic word maybe to stir people up, to step out and to step forward, to do the right thing that they know they should do. Maybe if they're dragging their feet or they're holding back and they're not obeying the Lord. And it also serves to comfort, that is to cheer up those who are hurting and just need a word of comfort to console them maybe if they're hurting in some way or discouraged or downcast. Now, would you agree? All three of those things are really helpful things. Those are needful things in my life as an individual Christian. I need to be comforted sometimes. I need to be edified sometimes. You need at times to be exhorted, to be challenged, to step out and walk in faith and obey God even when it's hard. As a church, personally, we need at times to hear a comforting word from the Lord, to be stirred up into action or to be edified. That's why I think he says here, verse 20, don't despise. You see there? Don't despise these prophecies. The word despise, when you look it up, synonyms like this come up. Loathe, scorn, 
hate, deride, look down on, feel contempt towards. The, the term that Paul uses there for despise means to treat something as if it's worthless and of no value, so you just cast it aside as completely unnecessary. Now, I don't know about you, but I kind of step back and I go, wow, why would God actually tell his people in his word not to do that to prophecy? Well, I mean, shouldn't we all want to hear a word from God? I mean, don't we all say, God, if you have something to say, I sure want to hear it. I sure need to know that you're talking to me once in a while and that you have a timely word for what I'm going through, that you know what's going on in my life and, and how refreshing and encouraging it is when you just speak right to my heart. Shouldn't we all want that? Why would we potentially despise prophecies? Well, again, probably because maybe of a bad experience we had. And then there's that temptation, right, where maybe something happened in the realm that was seemingly to be prophetic or supposedly prophetic, and the Bible indicates that there are going to be challenges like false prophets, people who do manipulate these kind of things and like wolves in sheep's clothing, they operate under the name and the label of Jesus or the Spirit, but they're just manipulators and there are false prophets and that can be very disheartening. As well, as believers, we're still living in a body of flesh and just like when you drink water, out of a garden hose, if you've ever done that before outside, and it tastes a little like the rubber hose, and you go, oh, I miss water, but you know, it tastes a lot. Sometimes people's flesh can get a little mingled in trying to be open to the Lord and letting God use them, and sometimes people, even in good intention, feel led maybe to share something with somebody or share something with a group, and maybe it's a little more of the flesh and their human spirit uh, and, you know, and because of that, maybe sometimes it honestly, it's presented as a supposed word from the Lord, but it seems maybe a little off or weird. And then what happens? God's people then fly to the extreme and they start getting all skittish and they get all uneasy. Man, every time somebody says, I got a word from the Lord, say something really weird. Well, maybe sometime one person did that. And listen, I'll tell you this. I'm not afraid to be open to that. And I'm not going to cast the baby out with the bathwater. Maybe somebody does mess up once in a while. When a toddler's on the walk, they fall. You don't say, you are done. One fall, that's it. You're out of the house. Look, I'm not, somebody may once in a while, even in good intentions, say something. There's nothing wrong. That's called growing. That's called learning. We don't want to completely shut something down and almost have a prejudiced attitude towards the things and the work of the Spirit and wrongly believe that a word from God is always going to be weird. That's not true. Or that it's always going to somehow you know, be awkward. And so therefore, what happens? People start to despise. They just they shut off. And anything that even gives the impression of maybe a word from the Lord, people don't want to even take a chance of being open to those kind of things and they're quick to dismiss it. Let me say this at the, at the, at the risk of even being mis misunderstood. I love the Bible. And Calvary Chapel Ministries, which I'm a part of, have been for years. I hope you would agree, highly esteem the Word of God. Put a tremendous emphasis upon the Word of God. And I believe that the safest place to guarantee that we are hearing God speak is the Bible. However, let me just say, God has not restricted himself to his written word as the only exclusive way that he can speak to people on this planet. 
I believe that prophecies from God are something for today within their proper time and their proper place. 1 Corinthians 14 gives us a whole chapter in our Bible of how to regulate and understand how prophecy works in the church. Jesus said to all seven of the churches in the book of Revelation, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. There are times when the Holy Spirit may want to communicate a word from the Lord. And if we automatically shut those kind of things off, I, th I think we do ourselves a disservice. We need to be humble and open and listen because we may potentially shut off the Lord himself. We could close our ears to maybe what the Lord actually wants to say in a given situation. And I know right away, you know, maybe you're in this room this morning or something. Wait a minute, if we start letting our spiritual guard down, and we start trying to believe these things are legitimate or for today and open to the Spirit's ministry prophecies. We're just setting ourselves up to be vulnerable for the quack job to come in and, and we, all kinds of weirdness in the church. Let me say this, not necessarily. Here's why I tell you that. Read on. Look at the next verse. He says, test all things. Don't quench the Spirit. Don't despise prophecies. But test all things and hold fast to what is good. The very Spirit of God who operates prophecies and moves through the gifts and the ministry among the church and God's people, that same Spirit of God instructs and commands here in the Word of God that we should never be naive spiritually, but that we should always use spiritual discernment in relation to what? The work and ministry of the Spirit, he says. Test all things. Just because somebody says the Spirit's leading or the Spirit's directing me, he says, no, no, you test it. Test all things. In regards to prophecies, test all those things. 1 John chapter 4 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they're from God. The word test means to judge or evaluate. It's a term that means to check something by examination in order to prove if it lines up. If it is legitimate, if something is indeed authentic and genuine, the idea is that we never just instantly receive everything. Nowhere does the Bible tell us to do that. We validate the source spiritually. And then, if it's good and it's from God, then we receive it for the good purpose that God's sending it among us. If it's not, or we sense it's not from God, then we don't need to receive or to accept it as being from God. Notice as well, verse 21, take notice of the middle word there. He says, test all things. Test all things. It is perfectly acceptable to evaluate and to judge all things spiritually from all people. I don't care what your title is. I don't care how long you've had a ministry. I don't care how spiritual you perceive yourself to be. It does not matter who they are or what it is. We should never be intimidated spiritually to test all things, to weigh it out. Listen, it happens all the time in my life. Hey, I believe God told me to share this with you. Lord, put this on my heart. Okay, thanks. I'll pray about that. I'll, now I'm going to pray and, and see if the Lord bears witness to that. And if it's of the Lord, I'm going to hold fast to it. And Lord, that, yeah, I think that was from you. If it's not, then I, I, I'm not bound to hold on to that. Again, I say this because what happens is, you know, and some people can be very, uh, you know, almost convincing in, in their, and I'm saying these things aren't genuine at times, but it's the old, you know, the Lord told me, brother, to tell you. 
you know, the Lord told me to tell you, just because somebody says the Lord told me to tell you, does not necessarily mean that you got to automatically embrace that you test all things. I'll tell you this, if my wife listened to that, she'd have been married to 17 different guys already. Because the 18th guy came around who God did tell you to marry me. The first 17, well, the Lord told me that you're supposed to be, I'm glad that she tested all things. Well, you know what? He has my phone number and he didn't call me about that yet. So again, people may say the Lord told me to tell you. That's okay. You don't have to cop in that. You can humbly, graciously listen to that. And then you pray through, you test that. Where somebody shares a word. Again, 1 Corinthians 14 says, let the prophet speak and then let others judge. So if there's a meeting and some, hey, I believe God's put this on my heart to share with the group, or that's fine, share. But it doesn't mean we just automatically embrace because you say it or you seem spiritual that it's automatic. No, we test it. Hey, does that line up with the scripture? Does the spirit of truth that's in all the rest of us as Christians detect that as from the truth or does it seem, I don't know if, 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 we test it. We test it and we evaluate by the word of God because the spirit of God who wrote the word of God is never going to contradict what he's doing in the present hour among God's people as the spirit moves among his people and the spirit of truth is who Jesus calls him will always detect error. We'll be able to tell. We can test it. Well, it's wise to test all things, but look, don't stop there. You see what he says at the end of the verse? Don't stop with just testing. He says, hold fast to what's good. I think the reason that's there is because we have to make sure to embrace and take to heart the good things that really are coming from God's Spirit. Because sometimes, again, what we can be guilty of is we become, it's almost as if Paul's saying, look, don't become so self-righteous as a spiritual tester and judge that you all of a sudden miss out on at times and let the good things God's really doing slip through the cracks and you never embrace them because Paul's saying sometimes God's spirit is really doing something. And he says you don't ever want to miss the work of God's spirit when it's genuine or a word from God that he may be sharing. He says because that's a good thing. And you want to be open. So he says, look, when it is from God as an individual or as a church, he says, hang on to that stuff. Embrace. Hey, that, I really think that's a word from the Lord. Thank you for sharing that, brother. Thank you for sharing that with us as, you know, as a group. I, we really feel that was a word from the Lord, that scripture you read or you know, that word of encouragement that you felt led to share. So even as we hold fast to what's good and from God with the same diligence. Look how he goes on, verse 22. With the same diligence, he says, abstain from every form of evil. The word abstain there means to refrain from or to hold back. So he's saying always be distancing yourself, not just from evil alone. I mean, that should be a given thing. But here, look, always be distancing yourself or refraining from every appearance even of evil. Even just the image of evil. The Bible's saying to keep ourselves away from participating in or practicing in things that even send the signal that we might be doing something evil. 
that those things we are to abstain from that might give the onlooker some image or suggestion because of our habit or lifestyle or what we're involved in that might give the suggestion that we're doing something evil. Again, how does this play out? And you can come up with theoretical ideas all day long. It's this kind of thing because I've seen, you know, just using real examples I've dealt with before. I mean, yeah, we're not married and we're living together. But we're sleeping in separate beds. Really? Unless that's your sister biologically, you're weird. Because if you're normal, I have a hard time believing you're romantically inclined towards one another, you're living together and you're sleeping. Hey, it's just a financial arrangement. Okay, let's say I'm wrong and I'm hypercritical. Does that still look very good? To your other single brothers and sisters in Christ, doesn't that kind of give the appearance of something that is rather stumbling or it gives the appearance of evil? Or the old, I mean, yeah, I still attend those parties or yeah, I'm still going to the bar, but I'm just drinking Cokes, man. And actually, no, I'm actually just going still because sometimes they need a designated driver. Well, maybe that's true, but what kind of appearance does that give still that you're still going and hanging out at the bar? Or you're going to parties where drugs and out. I mean, again, it's the appearance of evil. And the Bible says, not me, out of love for the Lord, we don't want to give the impression or indication that we're doing something that's going to dishonor our Father in heaven or dishonor Jesus, whom we represent. And out of love for other people, we don't want to stumble or misguide people and give them a wrong influence because we're doing something that just gives the appearance of evil. And maybe maybe we're genuinely not doing anything wrong, but the very appearance may give another believer who's looking on the indication, hey, they do that, so I guess it's okay. And we could wrongly stumble someone else. And I know our humanity always protests, but I'm not doing anything wrong. Yeah, but what does the impression give? The Bible says that does matter. Remember, God loves people and it's not always just outright practicing evil that is detrimental. Sometimes, honestly, just the appearance of what we're doing can also be something that can be hurtful or harmful because it can be stumbling. And I think this is a command out of love God gives to us to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you that we would be sensitive to the Spirit in such a way, individually, personally, to listen to what He's saying to our conscience. Because sometimes He may say, you know what, what, what does that look like? What, what would the appearance of that give to some? Again, as parents, I think we need to take that into consideration. You know, okay, well, I, well, I, look, I'm an adult, but what appearance does that give to your kids? What are they gleaning from that? When they see you, hey, I'm only hitting one beer. I can hit one beer. It's not drunkenness. Well, okay. I'm not going to argue with it. But what appearance are you giving to your children? What are you conveying? To see, we have to take those things into consideration, whether it's with our children, whether it's other Christians, and whether it's the unsaved world. Because the Spirit wants to glorify Christ and the Spirit wants us to love and to help people. Paul kind of brings this to a close, the benediction now. We'll look at verse 23 and 24. Obviously, the last few verses have little as far as applicational content. You can read through them. But Paul says, Now may the God of peace himself, notice, sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So as he comes to the close of his letter and the benediction, he does what? Again, notice verse 23, returns back to this same theme all throughout this letter 
of the return of Christ, doing what we do out of readiness because we realize that at any given moment the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ may come to pass. So we do all these things that we read in the Word of God here because Jesus' return is soon. And Paul's saying, may God work in you and cause the entirety of your whole being, he said, to be set apart entirely for Him, to be preserved so that you'll have no guilt and no shame when Jesus arrives. He calls him the God of peace, not only that we would make peace with God through a relationship with Jesus Christ, that's the first step, being coming at peace with God by entrusting Jesus as Savior so that the blood of Christ can take away the offense of my sin and rebellion. But even after we make peace with God, God wants us to experience the peace of God and that happens as we let God work in our lives through a lifelong process of both sanctification and preservation. That's what verse 23 points to, sanctification. He says, may God sanctify you completely or fully. Again, the word sanctify means to be set apart for special use. And sanctification is that process in you and me as a Christian whereby After you're saved, the Holy Spirit indwells you, and for the rest of your Christian experience, God is gradually, little by little, by His Spirit, trying to make you more Christ-like, trying to give you greater victory over sin, trying to help you to walk more in the Spirit and less in the flesh. And Paul says, I'm praying that God will complete this sanctifying process in you to its entirety, to the greatest fullness, and why? The intention or reason for our spiritual preservation He says at the end of verse that your whole spirit, soul, and body may be preserved blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The idea is that we might be kept from having guilt or regret, things that we feel blame over, that we've done wrong, that when Jesus shows up, Paul's saying, God wants to work in your life to keep your track record clean so that he can keep you from feeling ashamed when Jesus arrives. So you don't have the guilt and regret of, oh no, Lord, of all times, why did you come back today? Or why did you come back when I'm doing this? And notice the reference as well, verse 23, to our lives as spirit, soul, and body pointing to the trichotomy of man or that we are a triune being by design. Genesis 1 and 2 says that we're created in what? The image and likeness of God. What is God? He's a triune being. He's a trinity. So in a sense, in a sort of an inferior way, we're somewhat of an inferior trinity. We're a triune being, the way God's created us. We are people who have an eternal spirit, the spiritual part of us where we commune with God who is spirit, the part of us that will last eternally because we are a spirit. And we have a soul, a consciousness, our mind, our emotions, our will. And then those things are housed within a body, a physical frame. So we, in this incredible way, being created in the image and likeness of God, are a triune being, and these things are very intertwined. Sometimes it's hard to tell the difference. Lord, is this my physical man, or is this the spirit? That's why Hebrews 4.12 says it's the word of God that's like a sharp two-edged sword that's able to divide between what's soulish and spiritual, to help us separate at times. And I think the mistake here that verse 23 gives this to us in or the order here, excuse me, is no mistake. Notice the order God gives is spirit, soul, body. Because that's the order God wants it to be in, that the spirit would be uppermost, ruling and regulating the body appetites 
and the soul, the mind, the consciousness, the spirit would be foremost. He then says, verse 24, and he who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. So a great verse. Boy, that's one of my favorites in the New Testament, just emphasizing the faithfulness of the Lord. How wonderful is it, ladies and gentlemen, that God does not save us eternally and then leave us to struggle in the spiritual life with all of our own efforts and energy. That he doesn't say, okay, I saved you, now you figure out the rest. I'm going to go back to heaven and hope you make it. Hope you, hope you have success living godly. But what does he do? He who calls you is faithful and he does it. He saves you and then he gives you his spirit and the Holy Spirit lives in us to empower us to live the spiritual life that he calls us to. So he says, yeah, I'm calling you to live godly in Christ Jesus, but I'm going to give you my spirit to empower you to help you to live the way I've called you. He who calls you is faithful, the Bible says, and he will do it, preserving you, empowering you. Jude said he's able to keep you from stumbling and present you faultless before the presence of his glory. What a great verse to just hold on to in your Christian life of how the Lord is faithful. You know, Maybe this morning you are here and maybe you're facing something right now. Maybe it's in your spiritual life, struggle with sin, some challenge ahead, something that you're looking at and you're thinking, man, I know I got to do that. I don't know how I'm going to be able to do that. But well, let me assure you, here's how. Because he who calls you is faithful. And he's going to do it. He's going to do it. All you need to do is stay yielded to him. And by the power of his spirit, he will work in you to do above and beyond what you could ask or think by his power working in you because he will do it. What a great encouragement to know the faithfulness of our Lord. Amen.